Hi, how are you doing? It's half past six in the evening. Sunny, but cold. The light is low and golden. And I'm walking along a farm track towards a very old tumble-down barn. I've got my binoculars with me because this is our country. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer. I'm lucky enough to live in rural Suffolk and I can walk out of my cottage into woods and fields without passing another human being. So from now, through spring and summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to my new podcast, The Stubborn Light of Things. seen a couple of white rabbit tails bobbing away from me into the thickets. I've got my ears peeled for nightingales here as well because there's some really good um, thickets and understory which is exactly what they need. This is an old barn but it's still in use. It's got a brick base and the back wall is brick um, the rest is black timber, as is traditional in Suffolk, and it's got a slate roof. On the other side of it, from where I am, there's a, a large door which is sort of pretty much rotted away. Um, and it's got openings on all three sides. First time I came here, um, before I bought my cottage, I walked along here and I could see there was a lovely old, really old 1920s red tractor in the barn. I went in to have a look. And as I went in, there was a fluster of wings. And I looked up to see a barn owl flying over my head and out. And there was a box with a number on it. And as I stood there, I could hear owl chick feet moving around. That was very exciting. Um, if you're concerned that I'm disturbing the owl, um, I want to reassure you. Uh, the Barn Owl Trust, when they're advising people where to site nest boxes, uh, make it clear that because barn owls have evolved alongside us to live in our buildings and dwellings, they're not disturbed by people going in and out as long as they've got somewhere safe to retreat to. And this barn is in quite regular use. Even so, I keep it to an absolute minimum. Um, every so often I pop in and pick up some pellets and, uh, and creep away. Right, so I'm going to duck it under what's left of the doors. No owl that I can see. 
what does it mean to care about nature? Not a lot, I don't think. I think we worry about nature, we worry about the environment or biodiversity or ecosystems, but I think we care about places and plants and creatures. We care about the trees our kids have climbed, the meadows we've picnicked in or the bluebell woods we like to visit in spring, or the family of ducks in the park. To care is allow something to enter your imagination, to become emotionally invested in it. We do that with things we can see and hear and touch. We don't do it with concepts. Birders talk about having a home patch, you know, the area they record their bird sightings in. And for Gilbert White, that was Selborne, obviously. For this week's guest, Kate Bradbury, it's the Brighton Garden, originally covered in decking and completely barren, that she transformed into a wildlife haven, absolutely buzzing with life. I think we can all have a home patch whether that's a tree with a nest in that we can see from our window, like the one I used to gaze at when I lived in a studio flat in South London, or a local park full of scruffy pigeons, or a stretch of hedgerow that we've managed to persuade a neighbour not to cut. Kate's memoir, The Bumblebee Flies Anyway, is one of the most inspiring books I've ever read on the subject of care and custodianship. And her new one, which is Wildlife Gardening for Everyone and Everything, is its how-to companion. To me, Kate is a walking demonstration of a different way of relating to the natural world. Curious, benevolent, welcoming, and proud of being able to make a tangible, positive difference to the world. In lockdown, every day starts the same. At around 5.30am, thanks to the great tits nesting outside my bedroom window, I get out of bed to make a cup of tea. While the kettle's boiling, I go outside looking for signs of hedgehogs. They have little roots around the garden, desire paths. Little bits of this and that are moved or flattened. I pick up my trail cameras, make tea, and take them back to bed for half an hour of tea and hedgehog videos. It's mid-April, the beginning of hedgehog season, really. There's one character, Sylvester, who's been coming into the garden most nights since the end of January. I recognise him instantly because of his markings. Someone locally must be daubing the hedgehogs with paint. Either that or has been hibernating in a shed. He has a stripe along his back, and a splodge on his left rump. I would watch trail cam videos of him ferreting around the borders, teasing worms out of the soil. It's always pleasing watching him feed naturally. He loves his hedgehog biscuits, but knowing that caterpillars and beetles, hedgehogs' favourite food, are in abundance in my garden, makes me feel really proud. Sylvester started sleeping in my hedgehog box, a secure box filled with straw that hogs use from time to time. He would sleep in there most days, and I would watch him on the cameras, feeling happy that he was just a few metres from me downstairs. 
Then, one night, he appeared to be walking with a limp. And the next. Then the camera caught him not being able to bear weight on his back leg at all. Poor Sylvester. I spoke to a few hedgehog friends and then called the vet. If he's in the box, bring him in, they said. It was late February. Still early for hedgehogs to be out. I gently opened the hedgehog box and scooped him into a cardboard box of straw. He didn't seem to mind. He was asleep. I walked him up to the vets and had to leave him there while they looked him over. I cried a bit on the way home. What if he's broken his leg? What if he has that awful metabolic bone disease that hedgehogs get if they're fed too many mealworms? I spent a couple of hours fretting and then got the call. He's fine. Just a dog bite, they thought. Just muscle injury. Would I be able to keep him indoors for a few days and feed him hedgehog ibuprofen to reduce inflammation? Hell yes. I set him up in the shed and dropped ibuprofen into his food each evening. This went on for three days. Then suddenly he was on the trail cameras again, ferreting around in the undergrowth. Hang on a minute, I thought. That's Sylvester. He'd escaped through a little hole in the shed. His leg looked a lot better. Fair enough, Sylvester, I thought. Fair enough. He didn't sleep in the hedgehog box for a while after that, mistrusting of me and my hedgehog ibuprofen, no doubt. But he came back eventually, coming in most nights and eating caterpillars and beetles. One night I caught two hedgehogs on the camera. Sylvester was covered in straw. He'd obviously just come out of the box. And this other hog, this enormous adult male, ran at him and shoved him hard. Sylvester rolled into a ball and the other hog rolled him around a bit like a football. I know what this means. This means it's nearly breeding season. This means these hogs are in competition. I waited impatiently for the first signs of a female. I waited ages, weeks. There was more of Sylvester on the cameras and more of this other one. My neighbour called him Alan, who has a big chevron paint mark on his back. Then, one morning, while drinking a particularly lovely cup of tea, I noticed a little ball of spikes just off camera, next to Sylvester, who was having a big scratch. Such a big scratch, in fact, that he rolled onto his back. A very comfortable scratch, almost post-coital, you might think. The camera picked up this female, who didn't look too excited to be around him, to be honest. But they did go into the hedgehog box together for a couple of hours, and now she's a regular in the garden too. In fact, Sylvester appears to have given up his cosy nest in the hedgehog box, and it's the female, who I have called Sam Fox, because why not, who now spends most days there. Could she be pregnant with Sylvester's babies? Or could they be Alan's? I'll never know. What I do know is that Sam Fox spends most days sleeping in the hedgehog box and she loves a hedgehog biscuit. I walk around the garden each morning while the kettle boils, looking at the desire paths worn by amorous hedgehogs. And I wonder, will the cameras pick up little babies in a few weeks' time? determined to see the barn owl which obviously means I'm not going to see it but in a fit of I don't know sympathetic magic or 
um, superstition. I've come back to the last place I saw it, which is a, a nice um, recreation ground we've got in the village. Uh, where I, when I've got my dog scout with me, this is where I come to throw the ball in the evenings. Um, and the last time I saw the barn owl, I was here, chucking the ball for scout. And as she was racing off at top speed, the barn owl appeared beside me and floated past my head like a ghost. And it flew up the side of the recreation field and into the the next field, which has now got rape in it. And obviously I stood there with my mouth open watching it. And Scout did as well. She stopped mid-run and gazed at it until it was out of sight. And then we looked at each other. And then she went and fetched the ball and we carried on. So I thought, I'll come back here on my perambulations see if it happens to do exactly the same thing which of course it won't if you've listened to the previous two episodes of the stubborn light of things you'll know that i'm a huge fan of the 18th century parson naturalist gilbert white and in each episode i'm going to bring you a selection of his diary entries from the date of transmission, so today that's April the 20th. Gilbert White suffered very badly from coach sickness and because of that he rarely left his tiny parish of Selborne in Hampshire. So the life that a lot of us are leading at the moment would not have been unusual to him at all. But he made incredibly detailed observations of his garden and of the local rutted lanes and the little hill near his house and all sorts of small local features. And although he's often trying to be very scientific, the love and the care that he has for it blazes out despite himself. And it's one of the things I love his writing for. Gilbert White was able, through the power of his observations and the fact that he studied living creatures and not just dead specimens, he was able to distinguish between three birds that at the time were all known as the willow wren. And now we know them as the willow warbler, the chiffchaff and the wood warbler. In one of the diary entries you're about to hear, you'll hear that he refers to a bird he calls Regulus non-Christatus medius. And that is the bird that today we call the willow warbler. You may recognise it from the way he describes its song. He also refers to the titlark, which today we call the meadow pipit. April the 20th, 1771. The dry weather has lasted five weeks this day. Just rain enough to discolour the pavements. A myriad of minute frogs, encouraged by those drops of rain, migrate from the ponds and pools where they were hatched. Hence, it appears severe frost does not interrupt the hatching and growth of young frogs. April the 20th, 1773. 
Regulus non Christatus medius sings. A pretty plaintive note. Some call it a joyous note. It begins with a high note and runs down. The titlark, sweet songster, not only sings flying in its descent and on trees, but also on the ground as it walks about feeding in pastures. April the 20th, 1774. Turtle coos. April the 20th, 1789. Apricots set very fast. The willows in bloom are beautiful. Men pull their hops. Barley is sowing at the forest side. Several swallows, house martins and bank martins play over oak hanger ponds. The horses wade belly deep over those ponds to crop the grass floating on the surface of the water. April the 20th, 1791. Finished weeding and dressing all the flower borders. Several nightingales between the village and Combwood Pond. Combwood Coppice was cut last winter. April the 20th, 1793. The cuckoo is heard on Greetham Common. I'm walking through the field of rape. The flowers are about waist high. It's just a sea of yellow. I'm not expecting to see the owl over this field. I don't think it's good hunting territory. And ahead of me there's a chaffinch. This song always sounds to me like a ball bouncing on a table and then dropping off and bouncing on the ground. And a teacher, 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 a great hit. And a brief chiff-chaff there as well. Hear that chaffinch? And the chiff-chaff. And the great hit. <laughs> Perfect demonstration. Chaffinch. Chiff-chaff. Great tip. Chaff-chaff. You know, trying to order up wildlife is a hiding to nothing. And that's what makes it so special when you do see things. As you probably know, I've been writing a nature notebook column in the Times since 2014 and my columns are going to be collected together and published by Faber on November the 5th, entitled The Stubborn Light of Things. Here's my nature notebook from April last year. The Times Nature Notebook, April 2019. Noon, and the April sun illuminates the verges with their embroidery of spring flowers. Near our little village hall, a long bank has been colonised by the ghostly bells of Drooping Star of Bethlehem. Among it, celandines and dark elfin dog violets, scentless but pretty, glimmer here and there. 
white dead nettle and the bright brass buttons of dandelions, beloved of bees, line the lanes, and the pasture where rescue ponies grazed last year is now a purple haze of glaucoma hedoracea, a fragrant perennial once used to flavour beer whose country names include alehoof, tunhoof, gill over the ground, ground ivy, creeping charlie, cat's foot, runaway robin and field balm. By late afternoon, the light is low and golden, picking out the texture of our old flint walls and Suffolk bricks. On the water meadow and in the molehill stippled field by the church, the rabbits are out feeding. Dun shapes lit gold by the lowering sun. The village cats, I'm told, are making short work of the Warrens' kits. There are stoats and weasels too here, and I'm sure they're doing the same. My back garden blackbird concludes his evening recital, performed amid the blush pink blossom of an apple tree planted by my landlady's mother a quarter of a century ago. The last song thrushes still shout from the tangled spinneys. It won't be long now, I hope, until the village's two male nightingales return to sing in our nighttime woods in hopes of attracting a mate. Last year one paired, but the other who chose a spot near the main road, didn't. His song perhaps drowned out by passing cars. With nightingale numbers in such steep decline, we can ill afford to lose even a single set of chicks. On the acres of rape past the church and across the stream, the bird scarer goes off for the final time. A gas-powered cannon that emits deafening bangs, it keeps pigeons and dog walkers away from the crop in daylight hours. As the last report fades, peace returns to the little cluster of houses with yellow-lit windows. Then a barn owl floats slow above the lane to the next village, a silent ghost setting out into the fading light. What I'd really like to do is just sit and loiter looking at the barn where I know the owl roosts. But this is part of my daily prescribed exercise, so I absolutely won't be doing that. I'll keep moving. I might do a loop and make today's walk longer but I won't be sitting to watch. But being able to walk in this kind of landscape every day is a privilege. I'm not going to abuse that. The Barn by Edward Thomas They should never have built a barn there at all. Drip, drip, drip under that elm tree though then it was young now it is old but good not like the barn and me tomorrow they cut it down they will leave the barn as I shall be left maybe what holds it up Twould not pay to pull down well this place has no other antiquity no abbey or castle looks so old as this that Job Knight built in 54 built to keep corn for rats and men now there's fowls in the roof, pigs on the floor. 
what thatch survives is dung for the grass, the best grass on the farm. A pity the roof will not bear a mower to mow it, but only fowls have foothold enough. Starlings used to sit there with bubbling throats, making a spiky beard as they chattered and whistled and kissed with heads in air till they thought of something else that mattered. But now they cannot find a place among all those holes for a nest anymore. It's the turn of the lesser things, I suppose. Once I fancied twas starlings they built it for. That was The Barn by Edward Thomas, beautifully read by the actor Richard Keith. And not only can you find his details on the podcast website, you should. Well, with enormous regret, I think I'm going to have to call it a day for this walk and head back. You know, one of the reasons barn owls are in decline is that we're converting old farm buildings into dwellings. We're not leaving anywhere for them to nest. And things like swallows and swifts and house martins and sparrows and starlings are having similar problems. Also things like stag beetles that want us to leave uh, wood to rot rather than tidying it up. And hedgehogs, which need untidy gardens and fences with lots of holes in so they can get around. And I think we're doing it without really thinking about it, but we're less and less willing to share our spaces with wildlife. It wasn't always like that, though. I mean, old farm buildings like cattle buyers and barns were often built with special owl holes for access because people recognised how valuable they were in keeping down mice and rats. It shouldn't be us and them when it comes to the other living creatures that we share the world with. And if we do things like putting up owl boxes and swallow cups and bee hotels, then I think it can be both. Owl, I've just seen the owl. I've just seen the owl, that's the owl. Oh my God, that's the barn owl. I saw it go behind the haystacks and it's flying up the side of the field. It's so big and so white. It's, it's actually, it's, it's not doing the very low quartering. It's actually just trying to get somewhere. Flappier flying along the hedges. I can't believe it. It's going over some round hay bales. Where are you off to? There's another barn over there. Are you going in there? Yes, it's gone out of sight. I think it's gone. There's a Dutch barn, open-sided barn with a corrugated roof. I think maybe it's gone in there. I can't believe I saw it. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. In pursuit now. I can't believe it. You know, when I said you can't order up wildlife... (laughs) Apparently you can. (laughs) So it was down here where I first saw it, at the end of the track. (laughs) 
Oh my god. It's down here among these hay bales, which I imagine are just crawling with rodents. God, they're just breathtaking when you see them. They're, they're so white and so big. Right, I'm power marching up the road now. Whoopigeon. God, the, the lift your spirits. It's just... I can't describe. I don't think I'm going to be able to see it again. I think twice is too much to ask for. to where I was before. Off it goes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. When it turned its face towards me, it was a heart shape and my heart banged. I can still see it. I'm still watching it. It's gone around the corner of the field and it's heading back towards the other barn. Well, I'm not going to chase it back to the other barn. I'll let it go. Still just about see it on the other side of the field. <sighs> God. Thank you, world, for that. <laughs>